Thanks so much for listening in to the Saints Hill Church Podcast. Our vision is to see heaven come to earth, and we do this by equipping the saints to know who they are in Christ, to walk in freedom through the truth, and make disciples who change the world. We hope this message draws you further into relationship with our Father, and if you would like to give to the mission of Saints Hill, please visit our website at saintshill.church. And thank you. Your generosity helps to keep Saints Hill going. Now, on to the message. Uh, If you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to Luke chapter 9. That's where we're going to be this morning is Luke 9. And uh, we're going to do something kind of new. And actually, this is something that we're going to start doing every single week. Uh, Over the time uh, that I I had off, one of the things that God was really putting on my heart was just the need for us to be students of the scriptures, the need for us to love the word. It's something I I literally, anytime I have just a little bit of free time in my day, I just begin praying, God, help me love your word more. Help me love the Bible more. Like I even hold my Bible sometimes, even before I'm going to bed, I hold it and I say, God, I wanna love your word. I wanna love your, uh, what you've spoken to us. And I just believe that God is going to give us a new hunger for the scriptures, a new love for the scriptures. So if you don't, don't have a Bible with you, and you only have your phone, if you don't have a Bible with you, you only have your phone, I want you just to raise your hand really fast, and we are going to bring you a physical Bible, okay? So, okay, this actually, maybe we, we needed more than I thought we might actually need. Okay, raise your hand. We're going to get you a Bible eventually. Bryson and Mariah are going to hand out Bibles. And if your neighbor gets a Bible and you don't get one, then you can just share with your neighbor. But this is a culture thing that we're going to change right now. Wow, that is a much better response than I envisioned. Okay, so if you don't have a Bible, raise your hand. Um, if, if you don't own a Bible, if you don't have a Bible at home, this is now your own Bible, okay? So uh, it's yours to keep, enjoy it, take it home. Uh, and read it. Spend time, you know, we're in the book of Luke. Uh, Spend time reading Luke. Spend time actually chewing through uh, the gospels and actually learning how to read the scriptures. We'll be talking more about this as we we, uh, get going. Now, I want to make a couple encouragements to us as a church and just some practical stuff. The church, if you're wondering, like, what is the church? There's a lot of like, you know, there's, there's a lot of different definitions of the church out there, but our definition of what the church is is that this is a counter-forming community. Can everybody say that with me? A counter-forming community, meaning that we're trying to indoctrinate you, okay? People are like, millennials grew up, they're like, my church tried to indoctrinate me. Well, no, duh. That's what the church is supposed to do. It's supposed to indoctrinate you. We are attempting to form you into a person, and often that person is in direct opposition to the person that the culture around you is trying to form you into, okay? So, so here's the thing. There are specific things that we will do on a Sunday morning and things that we will promote that will be counter to everything that is normal in our world today. So you'll come here, and sometimes it's going to feel like whiplash, like, whoa, what was that? That was really weird. From, from communion, we eat bread and we drink wine and we believe that it's the body of Christ and his blood. So we're like spiritual cannibals, okay? Uh, for, to, to prayer, to standing up and praying for people. What, how often do you uh, even talk to strangers, let alone pray for strangers, right? To giving your money to the church. I remember I told my cousin one time, he's not a Christian. Uh, he, he's like, so do, how, do you, how do you make a living, I was like, well, people give to the church and that's, you know, what goes to fund my salary. And he's like, people give their money to the church? I'm like, yes, people, people give their money. To, well, why do they do that? Because the Bible tells them to do that. <laughs> and he's like, how much money do they give? And I'm like, like 
of their income. He's like, holy cow, I don't think I could ever do that. I'm like, yeah, because it's a regenerated thing, right? So the things that we do are counter to what the culture encourages you to do. So I want to start another counter practice. Uh, I am like the first to admit that I am guilty of, of coming to church with just my phone and using my Bi- the Bible app on my phone. We all do it, right? In fact, right now when I told you, if you're using your phone and you need a Bible, you're like, shame, shame, I'm so sorry. Well, no, I do it too. But I, I want to say that this is like, um, you know, Bill Johnson was once asked, he was asked, when did you see uh, kind of the energy towards revival wane in your church? When did it start to kind of wane? And he said, 2008. Because in 2007, the iPhone came out. And in 2008, I started seeing people who were constantly distracted with their phone, constantly looking at ESPN, constantly looking at the text message or the calendar event, or, you know, just wondering, oh, I do wonder what the weather's like out there and you know, in the middle of the sermon. And, what, and it's just distracting. I, I want to encourage you, bring a real Bible and don't bring a phone. Or if you bring your phone, and, and this is something we're gonna have to work on, because even, this is like in me, I, I, I have, I've fallen into this. Uh, put your phone somewhere out of reach, like put it in a bag somewhere when you walk into this room. Like we have a couple hours on a Sunday morning, you have however many other hours are in the rest of the week, consecrate this time to God. Consecrate this time to God. When you come into this room, say, I'm not here for any other reason aside from you. And I don't want to be distracted by any other thing that's going on. It can wait. I'm here for you. Okay? So um, put, it, put it out of reach and, and bring a real Bible. Now, on another note, and this is something I just want to, this is something we're going to be working on as a staff. Uh, you can tell, like, this guy goes away for a vacation and he comes back and he's ready to, like, lead. Yeah, I'm ready to lead. So, uh, another thing is this is like the most distracting room ever. Have you noticed that? There's all this light coming in. The, the, it's like the most echoey room in the world. Somebody, you know, there's tin hydro flasks just like falling one by one around, around the room. It's loud. It's noisy. Um, and, and we have developed this kind of habit as a church. I've never seen a group of people who needs to use the restroom more than this uh, church. <laughs> Last Sunday, I was literally like, I, I went home and I was like, I think that was church. But that was the most, and I, I noticed it more because I'm, I'm a leader here, but that was the most distracting thing I've ever seen in my entire life. It's like up, down, up, down, to the bathroom, back, out, around this door. And by the way, unless you're a parent, don't go through that door. Um, like up, down, all around. And it's like, wow, this is so distracting. So a couple attempts to remedy this. We've actually bought rugs that are eventually coming. They're gonna have a big rug down here for prayer ministry time. We're gonna have rugs going down each of the aisles to try to soften and dampen some of the sound in here. Um, we're actually gonna get a, uh, I believe this is on its way as well. We're gonna get a whole drape that covers the garage door area. We're going to ask that nobody enters or exits that door any longer just to try to minimize distraction and minimize a little bit of the light. Um, If you need to use the restroom, just use it during the four minutes. That's your easy out. Oh, I got to go to the bathroom. I don't have to talk to this person that I don't know. There you go. if your child, by the way, I know we got like, like family row down over there. If your child, uh, it's, it's awesome actually. It's kind of nice that we have that. Uh, but if your child is, is having a hard time, we have a brand new area. We're going to ask you not to congregate out in the lobby area. We're going to ask you to go to kind of the art gallery area and you'll see a brand new little rug put down with some toys and baby wipes and chairs and that sort of thing. So if your kid is having a hard time and you don't want to put them in the child care uh, that we have, you can go there with your kid and you'll probably meet some other parents. It might be a good way to connect. So 
We're asking that you do that. Um, and that's it. That's all the things that I needed to say. So I, I just think that we can make this a really intentional time. I think that we can make this a time that is truly consecrated to God. That isn't, you know, I'd encourage you, if you come to church and the primary reason you come to church is for social reasons, I'd encourage, I'd, I'd challenge you on that. You are here to minister to the living God, the creator of heaven and earth. That's why you're here. So, you know, I understand that not everybody comes to church and you're just feeling like, I'm so full, I can't wait to give all this fullness to God. That's fine. I hope you come sometimes like that. But if you don't come that way, at least come hungry for him. At least come hungry for him. So, sound good? Yes. All right, all right. On to the passage. All right, let's stand for the reading of scripture. This is Luke chapter nine. And we're gonna be in verse 10. A very famous story, but such a good one. All right, here's what it says. When the apostles returned, they reported to Jesus what they had done. Then he took them with him and they withdrew by themselves to a town called Bethsaida. But the crowds learned about it and followed him. He welcomed them and spoke to them about the kingdom of God and he healed those who needed healing. Late in the afternoon, the 12 came to him and said, send the crowd away so they can go to the surrounding villages and countryside and find food and lodging because we are in a remote place here. He replied, you give them something to eat. Let's all just say that. You give them something to eat. They answered, we have only five loaves of bread and two fish. Unless we go and buy food for all this crowd, about 5,000 men were there. That's not counting women and children. It was a large, large crowd. But he said to his disciples, make them sit down in groups of about 50 each. The disciples did so, and everyone sat down. Taking the five loaves and the two fish and looking up to heaven, he gave thanks and broke them. Then he gave them to the disciples to distribute to the people. They all ate and were satisfied. And the disciples picked up 12 basketfuls of broken pieces that were left over. This is the word of the Lord. You can go ahead and grab a seat. You know, there's only a handful of stories of Jesus that are attested to or, you know, show up in every one of the gospels. And this is one of them. This is one of them. What I want to do is I want to go verse by verse through this, and I want to bring out um, some of what this passage actually means. But to start, I want to go to the previous couple chapters. If you recall, the, or our previous couple verses, if you recall, the disciples were sent out by Jesus in the previous story to do the stuff that Jesus had been doing. And look at their success. Look at this kind of success that they're having. Now, this is in verse 7. Now, Herod the Tetrarch is the ruler of the area. He heard about what was going on all these disciples doing all this stuff. And he was perplexed because some were saying that John had been raised from the dead. Others that Elijah had appeared and still others that one of the prophets of long ago had come back to life. But Herod said, I beheaded John. Who then is this I hear such things about? And he tried to see him. So they're catching the attention of the local ruler and the local ruler's going, I beheaded John, so who's this Jesus guy? And it's a threat, you know, I, I, it's, it's funny language. Who then is this? I, I hear such things about, and he tried to see him. I just wanna see him, right? So watch what Jesus does. So, so they're facing this threat, incredible ministry. Opposition comes. 
Opposition oftentimes is the mark that your ministry is actually going in the right direction. Opposition comes, and watch what Jesus does. Verse 10, when the apostles returned, they reported to Jesus what they had done. Then he took them with him, and they withdrew. Everybody say withdrew. By themselves to a town called Bethsaida. So Jesus, knowing the threat, he pulls his guys back from the field and he says, we're gonna have some rest, we're gonna have some time away. When I read this, I remembered, you know, another thing that Jesus says is that when you do ministry, be innocent as a dove and wise as a serpent. It might look like, and I see this a lot in the church today, it might look like it's like urgent. You, uh, ministry is urgent. You should be, you, it, there's a sense of urgency that you should have to reach the world around you. This is not how Jesus did ministry. He was never hurried. He wasn't panicked. His hand wasn't forced. He is moving at a pace that is God, so he actually can afford the time away. They can afford the rest, right? He's moving at God's pace, not the need of the world's pace. It's a very key lesson. We could speak about that for a long time, but on to verse 11. But the crowds learned about it. So all these people are hearing about what Jesus is doing. I mean, you have to imagine in a day with no, without any kind of health care, there are people getting healed, not just marginally better, totally better. So, so the crowd's are like, where, where can I go? Like, where is this guy, right? So they, they, they come and they find him, right? He welcomed them and spoke to them about the kingdom of God, and he healed those who needed healing. Now, this is another insight into how Jesus did ministry and how we are to do ministry as well. Do you need rest as a human? Yes, you're a physical, mortal person with limitations. But is God's power and energy bound by your physical limitations? No. So Jesus doesn't go, hey guys, we're actually on a little bit of a vacation here. I don't know if you saw the away message on my email. I need you guys to just like take a couple steps back. We're gonna do our thing. We'll eventually, you know, recharge and we'll be ready. No, he's, he's like, there's a need here. They came to me. They're that hungry. Okay, let's minister to them. Verse 12, late in the afternoon, the 12 came to him and said, send the crowd away. Yes, please. So that they can go to the surrounding villages and countryside and find food and lodging because we are in a remote place here. Now, that word remote place could mean deserted. We're in a deserted place, or it could mean we're in the wilderness. Now, this is where the story is designed to evoke something to the Bible reader. Where have we seen people, a large amount of people, in the wilderness receiving miraculous provision? In the Exodus. In the Exodus story, so we're instantly, as Bible readers, we're supposed to think Moses. Oh, what's going on? This is like a, this is a new Exodus. This is a, a new Moses. Verse 13, he replied, you give them something to eat. They answered, we have only five loaves of bread and two fish, unless we go and buy food for all this crowd. You know, Jesus knows there's no food. He knows his disciples don't have any food, but he asks them to do the impossible nonetheless. I just want you to kind of tuck that away for a little later. Verse 14, about 5,000 men were there, but he said to his disciples, make them sit down in groups of about 50 each. The disciples did so, and everyone sat down. Taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven, he gave thanks and broke them. Then he gave them to the disciples to distribute to the people. They all ate and were satisfied. And the disciples picked up 12 basketfuls of broken pieces that were left over. Notice his specific actions when he actually receives the food. So he looks up to heaven. Kind of imagining he looks up to the heavens, right? Where He's, he's teaching us, where, is, where does help really come from? Look to heaven. 
He gives thanks for the little that is there. He breaks the bread and then he gives it. Do you see what Jesus is leading towards? It's this new Moses, new Exodus thing, but this is Eucharist. This is the new Moses leading a new Exodus and he is pointing toward the future meal that every believer, every person who's in Christ will share in the new heavens and the new earth. This is something that Isaiah envisioned long ago and I think Jesus is emulating in this moment. Check it out. This is the prophet Isaiah prophesying. On this mountain, the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich food for all peoples, a banquet of, a banquet of aged wine, the best of meats and the finest of wines. On this mountain, he will destroy the shroud that enfolds all peoples, the sheet that covers all nations. He will swallow up death forever. Looking towards that future, the consummation of all things, when God restores humanity, when all is made right, there's gonna be a meal. There's gonna be a meal. And this is what Jesus is emulating. He's, he's, he's building an appetite in humanity. Don't you want the meal? Don't you want the meal? Now, here's what's interesting to me. Scholars believe that the site of the feeding of the 5,000, this, this place, Bethsaida, was the exact place where the zealot movement began. How many of you guys have ever heard of the zealots before, the Jewish sect, the zealots? Good. The zealots were basically Jewish terrorists, so they were this, this kind of movement that gained popularity in the first century. They would go into crowded places where the known Romans lived within their kind of occupied regions, and they would actually stab Romans. They'd kill them. They'd kill soldiers. Uh, they, they, were, they were seen as incredibly dangerous, especially to the Roman people. Um, so here Jesus is in the very place where the zealot movement is about to begin. And it's almost as if he's fanning the flames, it would appear. <laughs> To the Roman eye, what does this look like? This looks like Jesus is feeding an army in zealot land. This is, this is very subversive. It looks like this to many who were there as well. In fact, in John's attestation of this story, uh, here's, we get a little extra insight. Here's the result of the miracle in John chapter six. After the people saw the sign Jesus performed, they began to say, surely this is the prophet who is to come into the world. Jesus, knowing that they intended to come make him king, king of the zealots by force, he withdrew again to a mountain by himself. You have to understand that Rome used bread to control the poor masses through a program called Bread and Circus. Give the people entertainment, circus, give them food, bread, and it will quell the masses. There won't be riots, there won't be revolution or anything like that. So Jesus giving them bread, Jesus giving them food, well, who needs Rome if you got a guy like this? It's dangerous. It is in direct opposition to Herod. It is in direct opposition to Caesar. Jesus is directly undermining the Pax Romana in zealot land with a new Exodus revolution. But it is a little bit different. Like even Jesus there, he's like, they're gonna try and make me a, a, a physical earthly king. He gets out of there, right? This is a little bit different. The bread here is not to control people. Jesus doesn't give you bread to control. He gives you bread to fill and to point to that future meal, to, to build up your appetite. What I want you to see is that Jesus is leading a different kind of revolution. And I would argue, like what's the point of this passage? I would argue that he's not giving us a lesson in guerrilla battle or how to feed an army or anything like that. He's giving us a lesson about who gets used in his revolution and why. 
If you're taking notes, write that down. Who gets used in Jesus' revolution and why? I think this story is about how you get used by God. Recently, um, Shia LaBeouf, an act, famous actor, he was, in, he was interviewed, and he has had this kind of radical transformation of uh, coming to Catholicism and, and becoming a person of faith. And he, w- he was being interviewed, in the, and he said to the person who was interviewing me, he said, you know, I used to live my whole life to be happy. Everything I did was to try to make me happy. And he's like, I don't live that way anymore. That's not how I live. How I live now is I try to be useful. Try to be useful to God. That's how I live. So, you know, when I'm deciding to do a movie, is that gonna be useful to my wife? Is this useful to God? When I'm deciding to make a purchase, is this useful to my family? Is it useful to God? And it made me think, you know, I I watched it and and it made me think, you know, how do you become useful to Jesus? How do you become really useful? Well, right here in this story, we have an answer. Because there are really two characters in this story. There's the disciples, one character, and then there's the boy and his lunch. We know from John's account that the food, it doesn't, isn't mentioned in Luke, but from John's account, we know that this food comes from a young boy. And here's the point. Here's the point. Who is asked by Jesus is not who is used by Jesus. Jesus asks the disciples, but he uses the boy. You may be a disciple, You may have future kingdom ministry all over your life, but God doesn't have to use you. In fact, your usefulness to God, it actually involves your disposition towards him. It involves you and your faith and what you believe. I'm not sure why the disciples didn't believe for more here. They really didn't believe Jesus could do it. Just a list, here's just a list of what they had seen up to this point. They saw him calm, and this is just going chronologically back through Luke, calming a storm, raising a dead child, restoring a demon-possessed man, raising a widow's son from the dead, a long-distance healing, that's pretty cool, of a centurion's son and healing of a paralyzed man. So what would lead them to think that Jesus didn't have what it takes to feed this mass of people? Or even... What would lead them to think that they couldn't feed this mass of people? Because that was the initial ask of Jesus. You give them something to eat. Remember, these 12, they're coming off an all-time season of ministry, so much so that the king of their region was aware of what they're doing. Can you imagine if St. Sil had such a ministry that the governor of Oregon's like, I gotta figure out what's going on over there. Okay, so they're an all-time season of ministry, and they're on fire. And even they're like, I don't know. You know, I kind of get it. As somebody who does church work for a living, I kind of get it. Perhaps it was simply ministry fatigue. And the need for food seemed like an easy out. Like, hey, these people need food. We don't have any food. Yeah, I should probably send them away. We've done enough ministry for now. It was a way to disperse these needy people, a way to recover their ruined holiday. You know, Philip probably wanted to go boating and they weren't gonna be able to go boating if all these people were still hanging around. That's me. I'm like, anything that keeps us from going boating or getting near water, not on my vacation. So really the question is like, who does God use? Who does he use? Those who are available. Those who trust that he really has something to do through them. You almost have to be a fool. You almost have to have this like heavenly foolishness that says, yeah, I believe he could do something and I believe he'll do it through me. It's like, whoa, whoa. 
Those who believe that he can use their weakness for his enduring glory. So here's the point I wanna make this morning. Look up at the screen here. If you only bring your energy and gifts and strengths to God, you will never see him do what is beyond what you have asked, thought, or imagined. But if you bring the little you have and your weakness and your exhaustion, it's there that he will be able to work in your life in his strength, not just yours. I want you to see what the scripture says about this matter. This is in Jeremiah chapter one. It says, the word of the Lord came to me saying, this is, this is God to Jeremiah, before I formed you in the womb, think about this, before I formed you in the womb, before conception, I knew you. Before you were born, I set you apart. I consecrated you. I appointed you as a prophet to the nations. I believe that for every person before someone is born, God has already planned to use them should they choose to partner with him. For every person, every person, every child. In fact, one of the habits that I have is going into my kid's room before I go to bed and just saying, God, would you help me release them into the purposes that you have planned before I ever even knew about them when you knew of them? What are the purposes on these kids' life, lives? Now look how this is confirmed by Paul in the New Testament. For we are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do good works. In other words, why were you created? You were created to do good works. Now here's the, here's the cool part. It's not just good works for you to come up with. These are things that God has prepared in advance for you to do. You wanna know what God has for your life? You need to find out what he's prepared for you to do. In other words, God didn't just give gifts and interests and skills to people, but he also planned good things, works for each of us to walk in. And not all, but some of these things are beyond, some of these good works are beyond what you could have ever even thought of asking for. Here's what Paul continues to say in Ephesians chapter three. He says, now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than we ask or imagine according to his power that is at work within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Jesus Christ through all generations forever and ever, amen. More than we ask or imagine. So hear me, God has purposes on your life to use you. There is not a child born who God doesn't want to use to bring about the knowledge of him and the beauty of him in this world. But the sobering reality, and this is really what I want you to get this morning, is that he doesn't have to use you. In fact, he will not force you. He will not force his hand in your life. Every person has potential, but God is not obligated to fulfill it. You have responsibility, and that's the rub. Here's what I wanna ponder this morning. If God wants to use you to do things that you couldn't even dream of doing, why do so many miss out? Or why do so many disciples fail to meet their potential? The simplest answer that I have for you is this. It's earthly thinking. Why do disciples, they have things on their life, purposes on their life. Why do they miss out? Why do they fail to reach their potential? And it's earthly thinking. This is the disciples' problem. You know, they're faced with this problem. There's a lot of people who are very hungry. And their exhaustion I believe, led them to think in their own strength rather than his. 
thinking only in terms of plausibility rather than dreaming with God. And, and this is a huge lesson. You will miss opportunities to be useful to the creator of the heavens and the earth if you never learn to operate in his strength instead of only operating in your own strength. So from my experience, and trust me, this is all learned through personal painful experience, I have three types of thinking that must be changed in your life for you to become useful to God. Three types of thinking, earthly thinking, that must change in your life in order for you to become useful to God. The first way of thinking is this, I know what will make me live. In other words, I don't trust you. I know what will make me live. In other words, I don't trust you, God. You know, we live in this world. Are we all tired? Everybody's kind of like starting to nod off. Do we need to do a quick stand-up? All right, everybody stand up real fast. You don't have to shake it off. Yep, thank you, Mike. Thank you, Mike. Stretch, yes, yes. It is kind of warm in here. That's to be expected, I suppose. All right, go ahead and grab a seat. Oh, it's okay. No, you guys, you didn't have to stand up. Yeah, it's okay. (laughs) Did you do it? Okay, all right, okay. Um, Okay, in a world of radical autonomous individualism, that's the world we live in, in a world where we're trained to believe that we are the masters of our destiny, we are the, our own designers, that, we, that whatever we want is the sole determining factor in our future, we also live with this interesting mix of wanting deterministic assurance. Do you know what I mean? We want, we want to have freedom to be whoever we want to be, to become whatever we think we should become, to want whatever we want, but we also want the assurance that everything will be blessed in our life and that will be used, especially as believers, and believe that really no matter what, God has a plan and it's gonna happen in my life, no matter what. But the, Bible's tell, the Bible tells us a different story about humans. The Bible tells us a story where the creator who gives gifts, who gives interests, who gives you energy and physical and mental ability says, I have so much planned for you, so what will you do? I have so many purposes on your life, so what will you actually do with it? For every person, God already knows what's gonna really make them live and what they should walk in, but the problem is that to live a life of being used by God, you're gonna need to be free. You know, we talk about freedom a lot as a church, and freedom is a good thing. It's a virtue. God wants people to be free from restraints, but the freedom is not just for freedom. The freedom is unto usefulness. See, to be free... And to be used, you have to be free. And to be free, you will need to release all of the have-tos of life. The have-tos of life. Do you know what I mean? All of us have these, I have to be with them. Or I have to live here. Or I have to have this. Or I want you to use me, God, but it has to look this way. All of the have-tos of life must be fully released to be used by God. And you know, this is what you sign up for as a disciple. If you wanna walk with Jesus, you're gonna be on a path of getting free from codependencies. You're gonna get free from all of this stuff. If you stay with him long enough, his aim is getting you completely free. It's not just getting you partially free, it's getting you totally free from everything that you depend on. Even that little piece of chocolate that you have to have before bed every night in order to feel like, oh, that was an okay day and I'm ready to go to bed now. Or in the Bible's language, you have to get free from idolatry. That's what codependency is, it's idols. Why? So that he can make you effective. So that you can be effective so that you can be used, so that you won't be double-minded and unstable in all things. Constantly like, yeah, pulled towards the vision and purposes of God, but also hanging on to all these other things over here. 
God has purposes for your life, for his use, but also for your joy. In other words, you have to, re- you have to uh, renew your mind and believe that he actually knows what's gonna make me live. And I think it's all these other little things and I think it's all of my have-tos and all of these side pursuits and I think that it's like, yes, I wanna be used, but I really wanna make this amount. Or yes, I wanna be used, but I really wanna live here. Or yes, I wanna be used, but I really don't wanna bring you into the workplace. I wanna be used, but I really don't. Whatever the but is, whatever the have-to is, he will seek to undermine to make you truly useful. So our prayer is search our hearts, God. What, what are the have-tos of our lives? Bring us to repentance. Second mindset is this. I need the approval of others, so I can't do that. <laughs> I wanna be used by you, God, but I don't really wanna do that because if I do that, that's gonna look weird. And I need the ap- approval of other people or that's gonna look unimportant. And I need the approval of other people so I can't do that, which is really controlling image. Now, this one is a tad awkward and slightly embarrassing for me because this is the main reason why I say no to God. I just, that just looks so cringy and I don't want to do that. I don't want to look that cringy. <laughs> you know, when I started following Jesus, I was 17 years old and one of the most compelling things was the idea that God uh, thought I could, ha- I could be useful to him that he had a purpose for my life. You know, I went from 16 years old, having no purpose in my life, being a drain on all the people around me, I'm sure, to actually going, God has purposes for my life. God has things for me to step into and things for me to do. This is, this is amazing. I went from no purpose to a whole future teeming with possibility of purpose. And so probably, you know, I really think this, aside from maybe getting married, my, my strongest desire in my life at that age was to be used by God, even more than getting married. I really genuinely was like, I want to be used by God in this life. But I wanted to control what it looked like. I remember having, and this is talk about cringe. I remember having this incredibly cringy conversation with a friend of mine. He was kind of like a leader in the youth group that I went to. He's like, what do you, what do you, what do you think God's gonna do with your life? And I was like, I think, um, I was like, I really want God to make me really good at songwriting and then I'm gonna lead worship in stadiums around the world and I'm gonna travel around, around and like live in New York City. And he's like, you just described Joel Houston's life. <laughs> and because that's really what I want. I was like, I wanna be used by you, God, but I just want Joel Houston's life. That's really what I want. I wanna be wealthy and I wanna have an apartment in Bondi Beach and it'd be nice to be very talented at songwriting, traveling the world, just singing songs, not having to do any kind of real discipleship with people in a church full of messy individuals with all their needs and that sort of thing. That's what I really want, God. And it's silly. Hopefully you can laugh with me because I laugh thinking back about it. Um, And thank God that he didn't give me what I thought I wanted. See, I thought that that would make me live. It wouldn't actually make me live. This is making me live. Being a father is making me live. Because, look, I'm not Joel. Where do you have Joel? God is the general. Imagine this. He's the general in his war room. And he is the one who determines what soldier he needs where. Thank you. The heart of it was that I wanted to be used by God. I just wanted to be in control of how it looked. Part of it was to retain my own comfort. Like, you know, God, I'll do anything for you, just not Haiti, which I kind of still pray, to be honest. I will do anything, just not Haiti. Um, that, that is a rough place, let me tell you what. Uh, <laughs> I married a woman who has a love for Haiti, and I was like, really? You couldn't love, like, I don't know, Italy? Um, <laughs> I, you know, I wanted to retain my own comfort, but I also, I wanted, 
why was I controlling my image? Because I was doing ministry for God, not just for him. I was doing it because I needed other people to love me. I needed love. And so the image really mattered. I needed people to approve of what I did, to think that it was important. See, your ministry, whatever it is that, you, that God does through your life, it may look like on the outside, very useful to God. But it isn't if you're doing it for, the, for love from people that God so desires to show you himself. We were designed to minister and to work out of a secure identity, not for a secure identity. So here's what I'm learning like real time. If I'm worried about my image, then I will only bring my strengths to God to be used. Well, this is what I'm good at. This is what I'm interested in. And this is what, you know, I've had traction in the past with this God, so you might want to take a look at that. Um, and I, and if, I, if you do that, you will only operate in what is plausible. You will only operate in what is plausible. If I don't offer my weakness and my limitations, I should not be surprised when I don't see things beyond what I've thought about, asked, or imagined. And I don't know about you, but, you know, I watched my grandfather die a little over a year ago. I was there at, uh, you know, the hours, essentially, before he passed away. My brother and I were at his hospital bed, and I, and I, I, I imagine myself sometimes in that same bed, in that same age, with that frailty. And, and I don't want to think as I'm laying there about my life, yep, that was about what I thought it was gonna be. At the end of my life, as I lay there in that hospital bed, I wanna think, wow, God, that was so much more than I ever dreamed, thought about, or asked you for. So I'm gaining this conviction that when God says, feed my people, and you bring your little lunch to him, you bring your weakness and your lack to God, and you bring your limitations, then you are getting set up to operate in his strength. You know, the world tells you, turn to a vision, if you had an impossible problem before you, turn to a vision board. Start networking. Get a new degree. But when you come to God and you say, here's my weakness, then prayer becomes the only option. No vision board or networking or degree can move like prayer. So honestly, my prayer recently is like, God, I have two kids and I only have this much time. That's my, this is my limitation. What can you do with this? I don't have that person's intellect. I wasn't given it. You determined in your wisdom that I should not, I should not have the same abilities as that person. So I'm gonna, I'm gonna accept the limitation. What will you do with me? What will you do with me? I don't have that degree. I don't have those connections. I don't know those people. I wasn't invited to do that thing. I'm gonna accept the limitations. What could you do with what I have? What can you do with what I have? And you simply offer it. Here's my limitations. What could you do with me? All right, last, last way, I promise, because we are coming close. Last way of earthly thinking that must change is this. I don't believe that God wants to use me. And by the way, this is a problem of I can't really hear him. I can't hear him. It's not humility to think that God doesn't wanna use you or to not have dreams or visions that are bigger than your life. That's not humility. It's actually a lack of his voice in your life. Look, when, this is from my own life. When you wanna control the image of what God does, it will lead you down some not great places. Places of codependency. Places of rejecting God's voice. I know you're speaking that, but I really think that this is a better idea over here. I did this for years, for a decade. Uh, the past eight months of my life has been a fairly all-consuming course in getting rid of my selfish motivations 
and saying, I wanted this, but I'm gonna accept that you don't have that for me. I wanted to do this thing, but I'm gonna accept that that's just not part of your purposes in my life. And so truly, over the past eight months, it has been like, hey, Alex, you do that for the approval of other people. Why do you do that for the approval of other people? Because you don't believe that I actually love you and I have things for you. You think, you think that you will produce better kingdom results through your own strength rather than coming to me in prayer and depending on me. And so I've just been repenting, like, uh, for those of you who, who know me, uh, I've just been, like, repenting, like, constantly, like, wow, that's in my heart. Repent of it. I'm not going to believe that anymore. I'm going to change my way of thinking. I'm going to live differently, right? But then I was left with this vacuum. You know, I got rid of all these negative uh, motivations, all these selfish motivations, and I was left with, well, why do I do what I do? Why? And, and you know, to be honest, should I do what I do? After all those motivations got exposed, I was like, you know, God, I don't think you should use me. In fact, I wouldn't use me. I'm not sure that I would hire me or put me on any team after I saw all of the stuff that came out of my own heart, right? So what I'm about to do is I'm about to preach to my own heart, and I'll I'll invite you to, to listen. What I was doing when I thought that way was I was forgetting the second half of the gospel. The first half of the gospel is this. Sin will kill you. It will render you useless to God. In fact, in the the Psalms, there's a passage that says, you know, if I had delighted in sin, you would not hear my prayer. So if you delight in sin, God is not listening to your prayers. So get rid of sin. Repent. Turn away from it. Act. Do something different. Don't just say sorry to God. He's not looking for sorry. He's looking for why. Why did you do what you did? What do you not believe about me that would lead you to do this thing? get rid of it. He, his, his blood can cover it. The second half of the gospel, though, is this. See, I believed that. The second half of the gospel is this. Remember your blood-purchased identity and walk in power. Christ didn't die to not use you. It's not like Christ died and he's like, there's 25 people that I'm really going to use out of all. It wasn't a shotgun approach. He died to use you. He picked you before you were even born. He gave purposes and good works on your life. Believe the blood is enough to place you back into the war room with the Father, strategizing to be used immediately. When we don't understand the gospel, this is why it all comes back to the gospel. If we don't understand the gospel, we disqualify ourselves from the lives of impact that he has actually qualified us for. You know, think of all the people who they paraded their disqualification before the Lord. Moses, I can't speak, don't use me. Gideon, I'm from the wrong class. You should pick somebody else. Jeremiah, I'm too young. Abraham, I'm too old. Everybody had a reason, right? And each one was faced with a God encounter and they received a call on their life. And when they did, they were qualified because they depended on God in weakness. They obeyed, they served, they partnered, even when it seemed impossible in their own strength because it was impossible in their own strength. So their lives aren't remembered for their strength. They're remembered for God's strength through them. And that's what I want your life to be remembered for as well. I want us to read this as we close as a liturgy of sorts. Brothers and sisters, think of what you were. Let's all read it out loud together. Brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are, so that no one may boast before him. What a good word. We need to remember that.
All right, this passage ends this way, verse 16. Taking the five loaves and the two fish, looking up to heaven, he gave thanks and broke them. Then he gave them to the people, uh, to the disciples to distribute to the people. They all ate and were satisfied. And the disciples picked up 12 basketfuls of broken pieces that were left over. God's vision for your life is a satisfied Newberg. His vision for your life is a satisfied Newberg. When God uses you to bless people around you, he, will, he, he doesn't just do enough. He will work in abundance. He is the God of leftovers. God wants a satisfied Newberg, but to feed Newberg, he wants to use you, the real you, not the one who's full of false humility. Oh, not me, Lord. Not, or the one whose ambitions have divided their loves. Or the, the, he doesn't want to use the image that you want to portray or the one that you've disqualified. He wants to use the one that he's made. Maybe just say that with me. He wants to use the one that he's made. Let's do it again. He wants to use the one that he's made. And I believe that God is going to give visions and calls today. That's what he's gonna do. He's gonna remind you of dreams that he's given you and he's gonna speak what you never could have thought up on your own over your life. And you are now the disciples. Will you trust that he can actually use your weakness to feed the masses? All right, let's stand. Thanks for listening. If we can do anything to help you, or if you want to stay in the loop with what is going on in and around the church, you can follow us on Instagram, download the Saints Hill app in the App Store, or visit our website.